0: All right, Christ City, we're going to continue on in our series in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, are very thankful that we are in the text today that we would normally call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Lots of people would, around the world, acknowledge that this is the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples as an example of how they might speak to their Father in heaven as a community, as individuals, how they might pray as an example that they could follow. This is all coming on the heels of the text that we looked at last week out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, and so I want to read that as a a bit of a preamble, and then we'll move into the Lord's Prayer itself. It says in verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to Stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so last week, we looked at this passage of Scripture and talked about the fact that we don't need to pray like religious hypocrites and be seen by others for our spirituality. We don't need to pray like anxious pagans who are very concerned that we need to say the right phrases or the right mantras to be heard by the gods, but that we We, as followers of Jesus, get to pray to our Father who is in heaven. We get to pray like children of God. And so Jesus makes it very clear. Don't pray like this. Don't pray like this. And then he says, when you pray, pray like this. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For, verse 14 says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is the example that Jesus lays out within a bit of a clarification on something in verses 14 and 15. First, I want us to consider the nature and character of God. I, I then want us to consider the nature and character of this prayer and, uh, and how we might look at it as a model And then how we actually might work that out, even in this moment today, as a model for us to pray. That's how I want us to look at this. So the the nature and character of God as transcendent and imminent. And then we'll look at the the nature of this prayer as both eschatological and very grounded. It's very heavenly, but it's also very earthly. And then we'll just look at it and and move through it as an example that we might utilize in our own prayer lives or uh, in our prayer lives as a, a house church today. Uh, if you flip to Genesis Chapter One, I just want to talk about the transcendence of God and the imminence of God really quickly. The transcendence of God is this idea that he is other. He is different, he is grand, he is over us, he is different than us. He if in a certain sense you could say then he is the creator, we are his creation, and it separates uh, and shows the distinctiveness of God in this way. If you look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and then And verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light. And then verse 6 says, God said, let there be an expanse. And verse uh, 9 says, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And verse 11 says, God said. And verse 14 says, God said. And it just continues to move through. Verse 20 says, God said. And verse 24, and God said. And then verse 26, then God said. And it moves all the way through. And what you see is the transcendence of God in the sense that he is over us different than us outside of us and more grand in this way where he literally speaks the creation into existence with his words he is the transcendent god who is the creator and sustainer of the cosmos but the creation comes into being because he speaks it it's how we know he is different Now, the transcendence of God can imply that there's a bit of a distance or a gap between us, but we would know that's not true. For we look at Genesis chapter 2, and we see a picture of what we would call the imminence of God. That's his nearness. That's his closeness. That's the way that he is intimate with us in that way. He is knowable and has revealed himself to us not only as the God who spoke everything into existence, but as the God who is near and knows us intimately. Genesis chapter two, if we maybe look specifically at verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So what we see about God in this is that in Genesis one, in the first part of the creation narrative, which is then sort of retold in Genesis two from a different perspective in the first part of Genesis one, he's the transcendent God who speaks things into existence. But in Genesis two, he's the God who forms things with his hands. He is near. You could say he got his hands dirty in this. He's with us. He's near us. He's forming us as male and female. And we would understand then that this gives us a more full picture of God in that he is other, but that he's near. That he's grand and transcendent, but that he is present and uh, and imminent in this way. So we, we have this vision of God then maybe cast into our minds in a different way when Jesus says that we are to pray to our Father in heaven. He's our father, but we're to pray to our father who is in heaven. And I want you to see in the first five lines of the Lord's prayer, verses nine, the second half of verse nine, and then down into the end of verse 10, it says, our father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have a picture then of our upward directed prayer with a mindfulness of God's transcendence. His otherness, his nature and character as grand as the cosmos and then beyond. That he's the creator of every star in the sky and he's the one who knows every hair on your head. But this is an image of the transcendent God who is speaking about heavenly realities. And Jesus instructs us to pray in this way. But then we move into verse 11 and it says, give us this day our daily bread. See, when Jesus says that we're to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's a picture of that transcendent reality becoming imminent in this way. Give us this day in the most normal, mundane, I need to eat something because I'm hungry and need to go about my work stuff. Here it is. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Help us to walk in reconciled relationship with one another that we might be able to honor one another in Jesus' name. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For we exist in and among an unseen reality of the angelic and the demonic, and we have an enemy of our soul who hates us, and we want to be delivered from the evil one. And so we would pray that to our Heavenly Father. We're talking about the fact that he is transcendent and he is imminent. But as we look through this passage, we would also see that this prayer is eschatological, while at the same time being very grounded. It is dealing with heavenly realities, while at the same time the mundane, normal things of earth, like our daily bread. What's happening is Jesus is giving us an example of prayer whereby we grab a hold of the transcendent, and then you could even say the eschatological, which just means the end things, the promises that have been made to us in Scripture for all of us who follow Jesus, that we are given promises of the future and what our future might look like at the end of the age. And we're bringing those in prayer, grabbing a hold of those realities and drawing them into the present moment whereby the eschatological kingdom of God the future kingdom of God, the future kingdom of Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is being drawn into our present realities moment by moment. And we're grabbing a hold of that and bringing it into the grounded sense, the heavenly being brought earthward. If I could say it that way, even though I don't think it's the right way to say it spatially, our father in heaven, holy, be your name. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the example that Jesus gives to his followers of how they might pray, not like religious hypocrites and not like anxious pagans, but how they might pray like children of their father. And so let's just walk through this line by line, and all I want to do is give a bit of a picture, a bit of a window into how I pray this as a model prayer in my life and how people have been praying this for the last 2,000 years of Christian history as a model prayer and how they connect with our Father in heaven. You know, There's actually an early church document called the Didache that just means the teaching where this prayer was commended to people who were following Jesus to be prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. That The three daily offices of prayer might be kept by looking at our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And so when we talk about this as a model prayer, this is what I mean. When I start to pray this, I basically get one line and I'll pray it and I'll allow my mind, and I'll allow God to direct my prayers into different strains of thought, almost running down different rabbit trails, different uh, ideas where I want to be praying, different things that God brings to mind that I might pray about them in the moment. Our Father in heaven. God, you're my Father. My Father, who's earthly, is wonderful, and I love him very much, but God, you're perfect. Uh, I, as a father, Lord, think of my girls right now. And I know that I'm not perfect. And I know that there are probably things where I've scarred them because of my own sinfulness and sinning against them. And, and God, I just thank you that you're my father, that you are the perfect father. You're the father I always longed for and the one I always needed. I've received your approval in Christ, and I know that I've received your love and your grace and your mercy. I know that you are the merciful God who is gracious to all, and you are the God that I can look at and I can talk to and call dad. You're my dad. You're my heavenly father, and I thank you so much that I get to appeal to you, the God of the universe, the transcendent creator of all, where I get to come to you in such an intimate way as to call you dad. You're my father. You're my father in heaven. And you're over and above all things. And you're in and through all things through your son Jesus. And you've got a perfect plan for your creation. And I thank you that I get to stare up into the night sky and see that there are a hundred billion stars in this galaxy and a hundred billion galaxies. And I can't quite contain the fullness of who you are and your power and grandeur. But you are my father in heaven. You are eternal and you last from everlasting to everlasting. And here you are and I get to call you father. Hallowed be your name. I used to look at this line and and think, Hallowed be your name. It would make more sense if it was Hallowed or Holy is your name until I realized that this is actually a passive imperative, which means it's a passive command where you would be praying that God, Hallowed be your name. God, make your name Holy in my place of dwelling, in my city, in my country, in my world. Hallowed be your name. May your name be made holy in Vancouver in and through the COVID-19 scare and pandemic going on around the world. May your name be made holy and not reproached and not you know, ignored and not slandered, but may your name be holy and lifted high that others might know your goodness toward us in Christ, how you've filled us with your Holy Spirit, how you've knit us together as a people. Holy be your name among us as we gather even in our house churches today. Your kingdom come, your will be done, On earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Again, the eschatological or future kingdom of Jesus being brought into our midst. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will for us, our Father, lived out in this city, in this time, in history, here on earth as it is in heaven, here in Vancouver as it is in heaven. So when I pray this, I say, Your kingdom come. I'm well aware of the fact that I mean I'm trying to grab a hold of the will of God. Your will be done. And I'm trying to draw his will into the city. This is in areas of things like mercy and justice and loneliness and community and righteousness in every number of different ways that you can think of. And we've been looking at the the eschatological orientation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We looked at this in the Beatitudes, right? So it's uh, blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. In the future age, they will receive mercy. But what we want to do is grab a hold of that mercy and draw it into the present moment now. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, we believe that in an ultimate sense, one day we will. But we want to grab a hold of that right now, and we want to re-envision him in our lives that we might experience more of his love and grace and power and mercy. So we want to talk about it in that way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Christ said, I want you to hear this today. There are times where when you pray this prayer, you become the answer to your own prayers. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my office. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my home as it is in heaven, in my extended family as it is in heaven in my house church as it is in heaven, in my workplace, my place of education, the people that I know in uh, the sports teams that I play on or the gym that I go to or the club that I'm a part of or the board that I sit on for that nonprofit. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm saying, as I pray this myself, God, would you use me? Would you use our church that the city of Vancouver might look a little bit more like heaven every single day? Give us this day our daily bread. We transition from the idea that we're asking for God's heavenly kingdom in that way, which seems transcendent and off and distant to be brought near in the imminent sense of the fact that he is with us. He is present with us and his will is being done. All of a sudden we shift into verse 11 and it says, Give us this day our daily bread. The most basic element of the most basic building block of a meal throughout the whole world. Give us today our daily bread. And again, I think it's talking about something bigger than that in the sense that we need that eternal sustenance and we need the bread that only God can provide. But I also don't think it's talking less than the meals that are in front of us. And what I would say is to be mindful of the fact that when your stomach growls and you get a little bit hungry, be reminded that you are not self-sufficient that you have needs. You need to have inputs in order to be satisfied. And you, Christ City, need the input of the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the community of believers that you're sitting around today, if you're able to gather with the rest of the church, and you have those inputs coming into you that are allowing you to have your needs met in practical ways like the daily bread in front of you. And then I would said verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You could say, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who've sinned against us. The reality that we can walk in reconciled relationship with one another because of the effective work of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, Paul the apostle talks about this in Colossians chapter, and pardon me, in Ephesians chapter two, where the work of Jesus on the cross and by the blood of Christ, as He shed His blood on our behalf, as He died in our place and for our sins on the cross of Calvary, that is bringing us into a way where we can, uh, we're enabled to have a relationship with God, our Father by the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus. We're able to have this relationship with him, and it reconciles us to God vertically. But Ephesians 2, and you can go look at this later on, actually has this beautiful picture of us being reconciled horizontally as well. Because if the gospel is effective and powerful for my salvation before God our Father, and where I can be reunited and and in that sense reconciled to him following my sin, I have a means of reconciliation, I have that as well with other people. So I can have horizontal reconciliation with one another. And so when I sin against someone, I know that I can go and say, would you forgive me for the way that I sinned against you? And because the gospel is true and it's effective and powerful, that person is free then to say, yeah, I forgive you. And let's walk in reconciled relationship. And so it says, as you uh, forgive us our debts, O God, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. If you skip to verse 14, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We're going to get there in a moment. We'll come back to this. But this is the economy of grace in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of Jesus operates on the economy of grace of those who have experienced forgiveness are then uh, compelled to extend forgiveness to others. Moving as we kind of go through our model of prayer, verse 13 says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation or testing and trials that our faith could not withstand. We know that God is not the one who ever leads us into temptation to sin. It says that in James chapter 1. But we look at this and see that we're, not, we're asking him not to lead us into temptation, but then it says to deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Christ City, we have an enemy who hates the advancement of the gospel. And because you have aligned your life with Jesus and you are seeking to live walking in step with the Holy Spirit and you're seeking to live out the will of God, we recognize that we have an enemy who opposes that and that the enemy in the unseen world that we live in, the unseen world we inhabit of angels and demons, that we have an evil one who comes against us. We've experienced much of this over the last six months in our church, and so I think it's right that we would pray, that we would be delivered from evil, and that we would ask our Father, we would say, our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know that Christ work upon the cross as Colossians two disarmed the rulers and authorities and lifted them up to open shame. But we also understand that Ephesians six is true that we are people who have to put on the armor of God and that in the day of battle, we need to stand and having done all to stand, stand firm in the truth that we know that we have aligned ourselves with the conquering Lord of the universe and that God is uh, just leading us through difficulties until the end of the age. We know that. But we also know Second Corinthians 10 says that we war not with flesh and blood, but we war with or against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And so we understand that there's something happening in the world around us and that we should not err on either side of the road that is the straight and narrow way to think about the demonic. We shouldn't err by thinking they don't exist and we shouldn't err by thinking everything that's ever happened to us is an affliction from a demon. What we should do is be cognizant of and, and living into the reality of the fact that we live in a spiritual world among others, uh, where there's contested space. The space around us is contested and the advancing church of Jesus is, uh, is battled against and we have to take ground as we battle. And so here we are praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then again, as I said, verse 14, if you forgive others, their trespasses, your father, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, this isn't saying that by forgiving somebody else their sin, you can thereby demand God's forgiveness in your life. It's saying that when you repent of sin, when you do that 180-degree turn of repentance and you turn from that which you were looking at, which is against the will of God and contrary to the will of God, and you turn from that and you turn toward him and you receive his grace and you put all your faith and all your hope in the finished work of Jesus and you live into the relationship you have with your father, By the Spirit, when you live into that and you ask him to forgive your sins, you then become the kind of person who's compelled to forgive those who've sinned against you. It's the economy of grace at work in the kingdom of Jesus and in the church of Jesus Christ in Vancouver. And so for those of us who follow him, those of us who understand that we're walking in the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God, it's incumbent upon us to then extend grace and mercy and forgiveness, perhaps even to some people that you're watching this video with. So we want to be able to function in that way as a model and a picture of the fact that the gospel is true, that God is good and that he has welcomed us to himself. We want to be that John 1335 kind of community where Jesus was teaching his disciples. And he said, the world will know who I am by the way you love one another. Christ city. We can take this model of prayer. We can engage the transcendent and imminent God of the Bible. We can come to him in prayer. We can recognize that the future promises we have are, are grounded in the hope we have in Christ, but we can draw those future promises into our present reality and live a very grounded day-to-day life where we are trusting God for every single thing happening around us. And in the midst of the chaotic world of COVID-19 pandemic and schools shutting down in different places, and some businesses closing and sending their workers home, and not being able to gather as a large church, here we are in the midst of it all, seeing we can have peace in a conversation with our Father. I would encourage you now as a group, if you're together with a group in this, why don't you walk through the Lord's Prayer as an example and a model, and just take some time and linger on each stanza of the prayer, each line of the prayer, and just lean into that, pray together as a group, work out uh, the, the, the relationships and reconcile uh, any differences. And, uh, and as you approach, some of you I know will be celebrating communion. Why don't you use that as an opportunity to reconcile those relationships and to really trust Jesus that uh, he would have us wholly brought together and functioning as one united church, even though we're spread across the city. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca.